Open up your Bibles with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. We have been enjoying going through this book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, being edified, as I'm sure these very first century Christians who had been converted out of Judaism were in their time. And we've come to chapter 7, there is a shift, you could say there is a turn in this sermonic letter with an emphasis upon the priesthood of Jesus Christ. This emphasis upon the priesthood of Jesus Christ as being superior will continue from chapter 7 well into chapter 10. Now, last Lord's Day, we had sort of an introductory sermon to chapter 7, didn't we? with the focus on Melchizedek. And that's because the writer inspired by the Holy Spirit is using Melchizedek to to bring to the attention to use as an illustration. And we're going to see that as we read through it. So let's just look at it together here, read it, and then we'll, we'll begin. The word of the Lord says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first begin by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily, that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them, received tithes of Abraham, and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less, referring to Abraham, is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them, of whom it is witness that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father, when Melchizedek met him. If therefore, where we're going to pick up today, if therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident For that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest, 
who is made not after the law of the carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, quoting Psalms 110.4 here, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath. By him that said unto him, again referencing Psalms 110.4 in eternity past, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety. Some of your translations will say uh, guarantee of a better testament. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once, when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priest, which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son, who is consecrated forevermore. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Well, for those of you who were not with us last Sunday, um, you missed a wonderful technical exploration of answering the question, who is Melchizedek? And we purposely focused on Melchizedek, didn't we? Because he's made such a central part of the argument here that this inspired author is seeking to make to substantiate the superiority of Jesus Christ over the Levitical priesthood. However, Melchizedek is not the main point of this chapter. Melchizedek, while he does have a central prominent place in this chapter, the main theme, which I promised you we would unpack today, is simply this, that Jesus' high priestly office is superior to the priestly office of the Levitical order, or to say it another way, that Jesus' priesthood is superior than any priesthood that found its foundation in the Old Covenant order. This emphasis upon Jesus' superior priesthood is, of course, right in line with what this inspired author has been doing. He tipped his hat in chapter 3 when he revealed that he was going to begin to demonstrate how that Jesus Christ was a superior apostle. 
that is a sent teacher and a superior priest. And so, likewise, beginning in chapter 5, he began to build up this emphasis. Not only was Jesus a superior teacher over Moses, but also he was a superior high priest. Now, beloved, these categories of an apostle, these categories of a high priest, they were very significant to this original Jewish audience in the first century. Why? The answer to why begins with the fact of truly appreciating that they had always related to God by way of covenant. And these covenants that they and their ancestors had always related to God through collectively are commonly referred to as the Old Covenant. We've demonstrated that as we were going through Hebrews. We showed the various covenants that God used to relate to His people, to set up boundaries for His people. And uh, generically speaking, we call all of these collectively the Old Covenant. These Old Covenants served simply as a legal framework, a legal structure, you could say, by which God established His holy will for His people and how they were to obey His holy will. And the Old Covenants, which they were part of, this audience, as descendants of Abraham, in these covenants there were appointed officers. There were teachers to outline for them the laws and the associated penalties of those laws. There were priests to show them how to rightly worship God. And so now you see why this writer is using these categories and why he's purposely calling upon these offices within these covenantal frameworks, which this audience would have been very familiar with. We come sometimes to this epistle and we're somewhat disadvantaged unless we've been reared within a Christian community that is unpacking these terms and really fully explaining these terms because we're not walking every day and seeing the high priest. We weren't raised as children within a context where we're always told the boundaries and the rules of how we're to obey and and, and please God by way of covenant. He's utilizing these covenantal categories and officers to now use them in order to establish within their minds how the Messiah, the person of Jesus Christ, is the superior teacher and a superior high priest, or as he puts it, is representing a superior, verse 22, testament, a better covenant. Uh, Testament is the English translation of the Greek word meaning covenant. This is what he's up to here, specifically in chapter 7, carrying forward. In this text that we have before us today in verses 11 through 28, he's going to set out, as you see in your sermon notes, four main arguments in this section of Scripture to substantiate the superior priesthood of Jesus Christ. And I suggest to you that we simply follow his outline. It's really outlining a sermon as if it were by itself. In verses 11 to 19 is our first heading. Jesus Christ, he claims, is a superior priest because Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, unlike the Levitical priest, is the one that could consummately, or you could say completely, bring sinners to God. This is what we find in verses 11 through 19. 
We notice it begins immediately with verse 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priest, he puts in the frame of a question, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? Verse 11 is setting forth this question which points to why he was using Melchizedek as a model for Jesus' priesthood in the very first place. Because if the Levitical priest could accomplish what he's saying is perfection, then why was there the need for David, inspired by the Spirit, to promise a messianic high priest king that would come and mediate for the people once and for all? Why, why would you need to do that if the Levitical priesthood could bring about perfection? You could ask the question a different way. He's saying in verse 11, Why long after the law from Sinai has God resurrected an ancient order of priests? Could not the Levitical priest accomplish what he says is perfection? Could not they draw people nigh unto God? Well, the answer is no. And the reason the answer is no is because you see in your sermon notes what this word perfection means. The word perfection in the Greek means fulfillment, final accomplishment, consummation, or completeness. So look at verse 11 again. If therefore final accomplishment could be made by the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there for another priest to come? You see the the logic of his argument. In their functioning as Levitical priests, their ritualistic ceremonies were themselves designed to be a demonstration of their own limits. They were designed to be a demonstration of their own incompleteness. The Levitical priests the people that they ministered to, they understood that their service was not a means unto a final, perfected, completed end. But rather their priesthood pointed to a promise of something greater, i.e. Psalms 110.4, the Messianic cream priest that would someday come and be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. No Levitical priest understood himself coming in and making the people finally consummately finished and complete through the sacrifice. No, it was just to appease God's wrath against their covenantal transgressions for that year. And then we've looked at this before. We know that they had celebrations. They weren't by Mosaic law required, but they did it often to help their consciences. They had other festivals and things of this nature where they would bring and do offerings unto God to help appease his wrath against their iniquity. So they understood that their ceremonies, their rituals were not making them perfect. And so now you get a little bit more foundation under his argument of what he's bringing forth before their thinking. Now he mentions here in verse 11, an order of priesthood. He said, what further need was there then that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? And this idea of order he picks up now and he fleshes out for us in verses 12 through 17. Notice with me how in verse 12, he stresses that if Jesus as Messiah now, as he is claiming, occupies this office this kingly priestly office as prophesied in Psalms 
contrary to how a priest is appointed according to uh, the Mosaic law. This is what he means in verse 13 where he says, For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe which no man gave an appointment at the altar. This is how high priests were in that Arianic priesthood. They were appointed a high priest by descendancy of Aaron. They were brought forth and they were recognized and at the altar they were appointed. But wait a minute. Jesus is after a different order. He didn't go through those steps. He's demonstrating in verses 12 through 17, he's not even from Aaron's loins. He's from an altogether different tribe. If that's the case, if he's after a different order, then there's two conclusions that must be drawn forth. The first is, Jesus' priesthood must be or could be entirely illegitimate. And this is no doubt what some of their family members were saying. This is no doubt what the majority of their Jewish contemporaries were saying. Wait a minute. The Mosaic Law never said that anyone would come outside of Aaron and be a priest. He didn't get appointed in the temple as a high priest. And if that's the case, perhaps then Psalms 110.4 is an error in our heritage. Maybe David was confused when he wrote that. Well, obviously this is the case. He's demonstrated to them that no, no, what's going on here in your lifetime is that Jehovah our God, who gave us the law, who is the one who established the Levitical priesthood, has now purposefully chosen to set it, the law, that covenantal structure aside. Because that's what the Levitical priesthood was founded upon. That mosaic covenantal structure. He's demonstrating for them with the arrival of Jesus Christ as the promised high priest outside and not within that covenantal structure's appointment being made a high priest, I'm abrogating that priesthood. And I'm purposefully, because the fullness of time, as Paul says in Galatians, has arrived, and it's now time to set it aside, because what it foreshadowed has arrived in the face, in the ministry of my begotten Son. Jesus' Being the promised Messianic King Priest of Psalm 110.4 is clear proof that the Mosaic Law concerning the priesthood is now being and has been abrogated. Or, look at verse 12, the law has been changed. There is made of necessity then, if what I'm claiming he's presenting is factual, that Jesus Christ, the Messianic fulfillment of Psalms 110 is true, And he did not come through the Arianic priesthood. He was not appointed at the altar through the Mosaic law. Then it's substantiated that with his inauguration as the Messianic king, it necessitates a change in the law. Or else, he's an illegitimate lawbreaker. You see the reasoning of the argument. To strengthen this monumental shift, and it was monumental, beloved, Think about what he's presenting to these Jews. To strengthen this monumental shift in the covenantal structure by which they related to God through the priest, through the Mosaic covenant, and its priesthood, which had existed since the time of Moses. 
Our inspired writer here reemphasizes in verses 15 and 16 that it is yet, look in your Bibles, far more evident that the eternal Son of God, the promised Messianic King Priest, had arrived. And His appointment wasn't accredited or made valid based upon His physical bodily descent from Aaron. That is what's meant when it says the law of carnal commandment. No, it's validated rather His priesthood upon the authority from that which resides in the very nature of the Messiah as eternally begotten of the Father. That nature enabled Him, didn't it? To live an endless, indestructible, perfect life that death could not dissolve. Look at verse 17. He testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This strengthens the aspect that Jesus' appointment to his priesthood is rooted in his eternal nature as the begotten of the Father. So now in verse 17, here strategically he interjects as inspired by the Holy Spirit to strengthen this point by pointing them back to eternity past to Psalms 110.4 where the Father testifies to His Son, Thou art a priest, notice, forever after the order of Melchizedek. Beginning in verse 18, this section of focusing upon the order through which Jesus assumes this priesthood in verses 11 through 17, focuses upon the order of his priesthood. It comes to a climax in verse 18. Therefore, the consequence is there is verily a disannulling of the law, of the commandment. Why? Because the text says, because of its weakness and its unprofitableness. That's the climax of this focus upon Jesus being through the order of Melchizedek instead of Aaron. The climax is, if it can't bring perfection, that order, well then, it's become useless. It's become weak. The disannulling of the former commandment, that is the Levitical priesthood instituted via the old covenant structures, we are discovering here in the text is precisely because of its weakness and unprofitableness. That's why it must be disannulled. That's why it must be abrogated. That's why it must be finally put away. Those priests who are here, we see, being inseparately connected to the old covenant arrangement were unable to effect, to bring about the perfection of sinners before God. There is verily a disannulling of the law going before because of the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. I want you to see that what the writer is doing is he is connecting the priesthood inseparably with the covenantal structure, the commandment, the law, in which those priests found their authority to minister in the name of God. This is what is meant in the next verse when he says, for the law made nothing perfect. In other words, the ancient law with all its priestly rituals cannot administer salvific perfection. If you're taking notes, write that down. Because this is what he's teaching, beloved. The law 
getting its authority through the legal structure we call covenant from God to them as a people could not administer. It was unable. It was weak. It could not, verse 11, administer salvific, complete perfection. Key word there is administer. However, under this current heading, this is exactly why Jesus' priesthood is so superior. Because through his passive and his act of obedience, even unto the cross, he as a high priest does administer something, doesn't he? He does administer that in verse 11 that's promised, but the old covenant priest in the old covenant law, legal structure, could not administer. And that is complete pardon, brethren. That is final, consummated righteousness. Where he will say in chapter 12 and chapter 13 is why we don't have to come every single year to be made perfect or to be presented with the promise that someday we would be made perfect. You see, he's superior because as a high priest, he does administer that which the former priesthood and the old covenant structure could never administer. Which, as I said, is consummated perfection. Established upon what? The righteousness of himself. You see, Jesus Christ, as the high priest of this covenant oath that keeps being perpetually referred to, which is unpacked in chapter 8, he as a high priest can administer that complete, perfect perfection. In our class we're going to do next, you'll see why I'm emphasizing that word administer. It's key. It's good theology. I want you to to know and to grasp what's really being communicated here by the writer of Hebrews. You see, because of his righteousness, which clothes us as his covenant people by faith, we are now, aren't we, permitted to draw nigh unto God. And in this way, Jesus' priesthood is superior because unlike the limitations of the old covenant priesthood, Jesus completely, fully, consummately, permanently brings sinners to God. This is why in Hebrews 4, 6, we're encouraged, weren't we, to approach God's throne of grace with confidence, not with fear and trepidation as if God's waiting to strike us with lightning. No, but through His Son, He has accepted us as his beloved. And that is why you see in the text it's called a better hope. And so the practical implication of this for the original audience, going back to chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, when they were being very strictly warned, the practical implication, if this is a better hope, if he's a better priest, through which he administers to us final consummated salvation, Why in the world would you ever be tempted to go back to the old covenant framework or structure? That's the implication. Beginning in verse 20, look with me. The writer seeks to strengthen his argument regarding Jesus' priesthood, as you see in your sermon notes, because his priesthood not only was that that could make one perfect, but it was one that was instituted by divine oath. By divine oath. He says in verse 20, and in so much as not without an oath, he was made priest. The core of his point being stressed 
in verses 20 and 22, is established upon the divine oath given to the Son, as we've mentioned, revealed in Psalms 110.4. Now, beloved, we've unpacked this divine oath when we were dealing with Hebrews 6, verses 16 and 20, wherein we discovered that Jesus' priesthood is rooted in an oath-bound promise of the Father to him as Son. That oath-bound promise we recognize when we were there is often called by theologians the covenant of redemption, which then moves forward in time, space, and history and is referred to as the covenant of grace. So the covenant of redemption we see is rooted and established in eternity. It's promising that Jesus, as being unfolded here in Hebrews 7, will be a high priest of it, outside of the Arianic and the Levitical covenantal structure and framework, and it is something that was promised in eternity past. And he and he alone as that high priest of that covenant, whatever theological words or terms you want to give it, he and he alone administers that salvific grace. Furthermore, we learned in that section when we considered the word of the oath, the covenant of the oath being described here now in in verses 20 through 22. We discovered that, that portion of this letter of the Hebrews, that the Father's oath to the Son, it was unalterable. That's when we saw that God's word was immutable. And we were to, as his people, as his covenant people, to derive strength and encouragement from that, if you recall. The writer's presenting again now this divine oath as another piece of evidence to substantiate his claim that Jesus is a superior high priest precisely because God never made such a personal oath with any priest in the Levitical order. So he's saying, remember what King David was inspired to write? This is who Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek? And so, dear brothers, he's saying, the Levitical priesthood, of course, is inferior They never received any personal, covenantal, bound oath and word directly from Jehovah. While, though, their priesthoods, yes, were established by God's law, the Mosaic Covenant, weren't they? Its legitimacy, i.e. their authority, depends on the continuation of that covenant, doesn't it? However, in contrast... The oath and the covenant that's being referred to in Psalms 110.4, that the inspired writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the fulfillment of that, it preceded, because it was made in eternity, the Mosaic covenant, and it supersedes it, how? I.e., it's better, because it continues forevermore. The Mosaic covenant structure come, at least we believe the Bible teaches, to a complete dissolving an end upon the destruction of a theocracy known as Judah. And so since it comes to a cease, all of the priesthood that established their authority from that covenantal structure who never had a divine oath, they also come to an end. Ah, but there's one that continues in his priesthood based on an eternal covenant. A covenant that's still administering grace and salvation. And it's the covenant of grace with Jesus Christ as its high priest. As one commentator commentator observes, very important here. This contrast, it demonstrates 
what the difference between Jesus's and the Levitical priests were not by degree of lesser versus greater, but difference in kind. Meaning, Jesus is the eschatological priest of the new and promised age. This point of contrast, end quote, this point of contrast between kind is significant in setting up the next verse. And here's what I mean. Jesus is contrasted here, do you see it? To the old covenant priesthood as an altogether different kind of priest. Not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. He's a different kind of priest. Very important you get this. He's not merely a priest in the same order who has brought reformation to something or a priesthood that had fallen into error. No, no, no. He is altogether a different kind of priest. You see that? And so additionally, we see in verse 22 that the eternal, immutable oath covenant which crowns His messianic kingly priesthood and His reign as a high priest also makes Him a surety, a guarantor of a covenant which is identified in verse 22 as a better covenant. And chapter 8 is going to seek to demonstrate that just like His priesthood is of a different kind, chapter 7, what this whole exposition is about to prove that he's a different kind so is the covenant as a priest which he administers it is altogether a different kind in other words and we'll keep coming back to this the old covenant is not the covenant of grace the old covenants not one of them administers perfect salvific grace because the covenant of grace rooted in that eternal transaction called the covenant of redemption that in and of itself is a different kind of covenant its substance its nucleus speaking in biological terms the center of it is the substance of Jesus Christ and we say that we attach to that like a chain we link to that the free, the, the free salvation that He bestows. The perfecting, consummated salvation that He gives. That's what's being drawn out here for us in verses 20 and 22. He's altogether a different kind of priest. Administering, representing an entirely different kind of covenant. Not the same old covenant that just needs to be reformed. No. It's different in kind, in every imaginable way. Thus, the divine oath, the divine covenant, rooted in that eternal covenant transaction, Psalms 110.4, that He keeps using over and over again between the Father and the Son, is the second aspect He's presenting of why and how Jesus is a superior priesthood over the Levitical priesthood, which they had grown up trusting. They had grown up knowing was their only way a mediator between them and a holy God. He begins in verses 23 through 25 to establish now that his priesthood is superior since it's eternal and unchanging. 
Beginning with verse 23, it seems as though the writer is now wanting his reader to consider the implications of a very specific part of that divine oath that he references in 20 and 22. Namely, as it's mentioned in verse 21, it says, Thou art a priest, notice the word, forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so now what he's going to do is continue to draw the comparison between the unconditional perpetuity of Jesus' priesthood with the obvious conditional temporal aspects of the Levitical priesthood. They were just but men. The reason he's doing this is simple, I believe. They being mere men, although possibly sinful men who have been truly saved, they still are going to suffer, aren't they, a physical death. And thus, whatever intercession that they may offer on the behalf of sinners will eventually come to an end because they too will die. In contrast, notice in the text, these contrasts he's making, which exalts the glory of Christ, which ought to inflame our trust, our security, our hope upon Him all the more. In contrast, the eternal Messiah, He has demonstrated using Psalms 110, is God, begotten of the Father, and He lives forevermore. As He made intercession, beloved, for His elect prior to His birth, as He made intercession as the eternal Messiah, High Priest King, prior to His death, resurrection, and ascension. The point is, so He still, this very hour, for His church intercedes all the more because He's eternal. He is unchangeable. The priest in the Levitical order Because of the corruption of their flesh, they would see death and they would need a new priest from time to time to come and to take the sacrifices into the temple. But with their life ending, so their ministry ended. But as the inspired writer will emphasize later in chapter 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. The eternal unchanging aspect of Jesus' priesthood is what leads the writer now in verse 25 to portray Christ as the ever-saving and interceding Messiah priest. He says in verse 25, because of this aspect of Him being God, being the eternal begotten promised high priest, He is able to save them to the uttermost that come to God by Him. As you see in your notes, That word save that is so common in our vocabulary as Christians is full of complex and uh, expanding meaning. It means to save, to keep safe and sound, to rescue from danger or destruction, to deliver from the penalties of the messianic judgment at the great white throne. And so it's in this sense that a vast complex of ideas respecting Jesus' high priestly work floods our minds, doesn't it? You see, the Levitical priesthood could only offer sacrifices that never made anyone perfect, as we've acknowledged, meaning completely and permanently rescued from the covenant wrath of God for the transpasses. Still more, think about this. They were limited and who they even represented before God. They could only represent and go before God, not for the Canaanites and all the sinners that were in the surrounding nations. No, they could only represent, and they only did represent, 
their own covenant people as being descendants from Abraham. But we see here because of Christ and His internal aspect of being eternally the promised Messiah, the Son of God, He is able to save us, those to the uttermost. Every tribe, every tongue. And that's what I meant when I said that it, it, it opens up in it, this, this large complex of ideas of His role as a high priest. It's not limited to just one tribe of people. No, in the Messiah... In this high king, priestly Messiah, all Gentiles, all Jews, all middle walls of partition have been torn down. It is atrocious. It is, it is insulting to ever place any sort of special categorical privilege in relationship to God based upon ethnicity. Do you see that in the text? Jesus Christ is to save them to the uttermost. It doesn't matter their transgressions against what law, i.e. the moral law of God. It doesn't, you hear this text often preached and rightly so, it doesn't matter what you have done, how much you've transgressed God. Because of the eternal aspect of Christ, His love, His mercy, His grace, which is rooted in the promise that rests between Him and the Father in eternity past, He gave His life for all of those who will come unto God by Him. No matter their ethnicity, no matter their sex, no matter their sins, He demonstrates this eternal aspect of being directly connected with Christ's ability, unchangeably, forever, to save to the uttermost. I think with that in focus, we can indeed agree with the author, can we not? That the eternal unchangeableness of Jesus' priesthood makes him, yes, far more superior than the old covenant Levitical priest in every imaginable way. Well, fourthly and finally, he begins in verses 26 to 28 to conclude this comparison and his argument of why Jesus, in their minds, should be identified as a superior priest based upon his sinless perfection. In verses 26 and 28, we come, I think, to the heart of the matter, you could say. In the inspired writer's last comparison of the old covenant Levitical priesthood. The climactic comparison in his argument that evidences Jesus' priesthood as superior to the old covenant priesthood is rooted, as we see in the text, beginning with verse 26, Christ's sinless nature. For such a high priest became us who is holy, who is harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Notice with me in verse 26 that he begins by focusing upon our need for this high priest. The old authorized version that I'm preaching from translates it, for such a high priest became us. I think a better translation would be, as such as a modern translation, the New King James says, for such a high priest was fitting for us. That's the meaning there. Well, of course such a high priest is fitting for us, right? Because after all, we're fallen, sinful creatures who can't stand before the thrice holy throne of God. And thus we need a high priest who is not like us, who is altogether holy and separate who can be that mediator between us and the thrice holy God. 
such a representative, such a priest, we do have in Jesus Christ, friends. We clearly see in what follows now with this focus upon His moral perfection that the text says He's holy. This means He was scrupulously and conscientiously moral in every way. He was harmless. I think after studying this, I think it it could best be summarized that He was innocent. He was simple from any evil. And lastly, this is what's so precious about our Lord as He's identified here, as He was undefiled. I like how one theologian said in his commentary, he said, get the picture that Jesus Christ, quote, was one, we know from chapter 4, who was tempted in every like manner as we are, but He was undefiled, meaning that the temptation never left its evil traces behind. This is our Lord the perfect Lamb of God. He was undefiled as to where the Old Covenant Levitical priest, of course, they had means through which they could make sacrifice for sins of others and for themselves, but they were still themselves not pure. They were just set apart for a work. No, the writer is saying, not Jesus Christ. He himself was undefiled. He was separate from sinners, simply meaning he was separate from their sin. One old theologian by the name of John Owen, he suggests that all of this descriptive nature about Christ's sinless perfection, it speaks of the holy purity of the nature of Christ and His priesthood that administers that salvific grace that intercedes for His covenant people even in this hour. This description of His very nature is how I think we make sense of that phrase in your Bibles. In the authorized version, it says, do you see that? He was made higher than the heavens. He was made. Some of your modern translations are going to translate it this way. Has become higher than the heavens. I think Owen's got it right here. Because in the Greek, the word became or made means to stand out, to be conspicuous, or that is to be imminent. You see, verse 26 is describing our high priest's moral perfection. And not that he transcended from one state unto another state, which is described as higher in the heavens. No, no, no. It's because of his eternal divinity connection in the Godhood that he himself is these things. He is holy. He is completely undefiled. And therefore, He is put forth as becoming higher than the heavens. It's the best way He could be identified or described as standing out as imminent because of His nature, not what He actually has to achieve or become. In verse 28, coming to a close, we're given a summary as if it were of all of the preceding points in his sermonic argument, which regarding Jesus' superior priesthood over the Levitical priesthood, the law in its weakness, you see, in verse 28, appoints men with infirmities, sin, mortality, defiledness, etc. But look at verse 28, this word 
we, 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 we so are so encouraged. As Spurgeon says often, thank, thank, thank God for the buts in the Bible. But the word of the covenant, the oath, which, what is that, beloved? Psalms 110.4. It's that oath, that covenant, which Christ is going to mediate. He's going to administer. But the word of the covenant, the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son, who is perfected, authorized version says, consecrated forevermore. And many of your study Bibles are going to reference you back to Hebrews 2.10, which substantiates this point that Christ is eternal. I said, as part of my introduction, it's a challenge for us sometimes when we come to these passages because it's dealing with concepts and categories that we don't oftentimes hear expounded or exegeted and technically gone through. And so sometimes we can find ourselves in conclusion in these sort of sermons and we say, yeah, this is basic Christianity 101, right? Oh, but put yourself in their shoes, beloved. We didn't do the New Testament reading in Acts 13 this morning, but it's one of the most beautiful sermons in all of the New Testament where Paul stands in the synagogue and he's preaching through redemptive history this message right here. The covenant obligation that God gave to Abraham, as we've noted before in the book of Hebrews, is that the Messiah would come first to their people. And he did, didn't he? And Paul and Barnabas were beginning to see in the book of Acts went all throughout Judea, all throughout Israel to preach Christ. The, the Messianic king priest has arrived. And he expounded this text. And so the significance for us is that as we stand in this, on this side of the cross and we look back and we read this, and yes, because we're in the milieu or the ethos of Christianity, despite our various traditions, some of these things already fall into place and seem basic. But don't miss the point, as I was telling my seven-year-old and said, she said, Dad, what's, what are we going to be talking about at church? Or I said, Jesus being a high priest. Well, Dad, haven't we already talked about that? How many times have we got to talk about Jesus as a high priest? I said, Honey, you can never exhaust the glory of Jesus' priesthood because this inspired writer... He deemed it necessary to come back and unpack it, really work through it. You remember what he said in chapter 5? I have difficult things to say about Melchizedek, but you have become slothful. And so he digressed in chapter 6. He warned them. Why have you become slothful? You need to wake up. You need to, you know, dig into these things. And he comes back to Melchizedek in this whole Arianic priesthood comparison. Why? Because it's supposed to foster within them a greater appreciation for what he calls Christ, the anchor of the soul, in the ultimate overarching theme and charge he's giving them as first century Christians converted out of Judaism. You, I don't know anyone in here was converted out of Judaism, but you were converted out of a pagan worldview. And he's telling you, press on, press on. This is your high priest. Far superior than anyone, Ross. Me and you, brother, your, your sons. Naomi, you as you grow up as a young lady. You're going to have so many things in this world. They're going to compete for the authority in your life. To have supremacy in your life. But none of them, the inspired writer of Hebrews from Scripture is telling you today. 
can take the superiority that only belongs to Jesus Christ. Search the Scriptures. Search all the pagan philosophers. And you will see that Christ is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Amen. What a privilege to be gathered even in a small group today as sons and daughters of this high and precious King. Let us pray. O gracious Father in heaven, we confess that Thou art Lord, the Creator of all heavens and all earth. We confess to You, O Lord, that we are sinners that have been saved by Your precious sovereign grace through Thy blessed Son, our High Priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You, O God, that You saw fit to inspire this author of Hebrews Lord, to present to us some of these precious gems, these aspects of our priest, the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that through your sovereignty and your governance over all things, that you have preserved this for us to feed upon, to meditate upon, and today have a feast as your people. You have kept your word pure. And we thank you, O God. What a blessing it is to be gathered today as your sons and daughters. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we would ask you that for the remainder of our service, that you would administer to us some of these precious truths that no doubt the hoary heads amongst us have heard many times. But, O Lord, will you by your Spirit make them new? Will you, O God, kindle a flame, a coal, Lord, in our hearts? afresh, that we may see our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, with new eyes. Oh, and in our next hymn, may we glorify, may we worship him all the more, for he richly deserves our praise, our honor, and all glory due to his name. It is in his precious name we pray these things. Amen.